Welcome back to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, specifically with our focus on women in tech. Today, we are joined by Christy Falterusso. Christy is the Chief Customer Officer at Client Success. She's had an illustrious career, winning many awards in building and scaling, transforming customer success organizations right in our sweet spot in hypergrowth B2B SaaS companies. And she's helped do that for the past decade and uh, specifically around designing processes, which we're keen to get into because you cannot survive unless you can actually keep the customers that you onboarded or sold to in the first place. So keen to get through that journey and what brought you to where you are today. More importantly, welcome to the show, Christy. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really excited about this conversation today. Well, I mean, tell us your story, because we often kick off the show and ask folks to tell us, you know, what made you decide to do what you do? You don't wake up as a young child and say, I'm going to be a chief customer success officer someday in an organization. It's all always without fail, a circuitous route. It takes twists and turns and, you know, fortune favors the brave and the prepared mind, as they say. What was your journey like through academics, your first job? Uh, and, and some of those nuances and decision trees to, to take you to where you are at today, if you could share. Absolutely. I mean, I think you nailed it, right? We don't, we don't, I wasn't going to school as, as a young girl thinking, wow, I'm going to be a chief customer officer one day. Uh, actually, as a, as a, when I was young, I wanted to be an attorney. So that's what I thought. I grew up watching a lot of like legal shows with my dad and was like, oh, I'm going to be like a big, powerful attorney, a litigator in a courtroom. And clearly that's not where I ended up. Although I do feel like I fight a lot every day and we'll get into that. <laughs> um, no, I started my career. I went to school for public relations um, and really thought that was where my path was going to take me. Public relations, obviously, 20 years ago looked very different than it does today, right? Um, you've got the digital landscape really helping to evolve what that looks like and, and how news gets out there. Um, back when I was going to school for it, I mean, you were writing press releases and doing newspaper click clippings and like it was all very manual, right? I'd I literally was flipping through newspapers to find mentions of the folks I was doing internships for. Um, and, you know, honestly, after my last internship, I was like, oof, this is not for me. Um, and so despite having a degree in public relations, I realized there's so many transferable skills about the things that I've learned, right? I developed writing skills, um, how to do research, but more importantly, like my interest for connecting around people and stories. And so broke into publishing and started my career in digital advertising because that's where I could get my foot in the door. Uh, worked at a publishing company for about three or so years as their online advertising kind of guru. I was serving ads on the internet, making sure, you know, optimizing campaigns for large, really large companies in the security space. I did that for a bunch of years and then finally segued that experience into uh, search engine optimization, ironically enough. And so this is kind of early stages of making sure that if you've got a website, you're being found in Google and Yahoo and uh, I guess whatever other search engines were available at the time. And that's where I spent a lot of my career. So I spent probably the first decade in publishing and marketing. And that was where I thought I was going to stay. I had real career ambitions of being maybe like a chief digital officer or a chief marketing officer and was really passionate about the work I was doing. I even taught at a university. So I taught search engine optimization um, in, in the college that university I went to, Long Island University, and was the first professor in the country to teach search engine optimization as an accredited 
program uh, at an accredited school. So that was really exciting to be able to do that at 25 years old. Um, so here I am relatively the same age as the students I'm teaching and teaching them about something that wasn't offered in schools when I was graduating. So that was really exciting. Um, but during that time, I got to use some really cool, cool software. And so I actually used a technology called Bright Edge and they, were, they are still a search engine optimization platform that basically digitized all my efforts, right? All the manual work I would have to do was able to use their platform to do it at scale and had tremendous success with it. Basically formed really strong relationships with their executive leadership team, was a two-time customer and eventually was like, hey, if you guys are ever hiring or you grow to New York because they were a Silicon Valley based company, I was like, if you ever open an office in New York, hire me, I will come work for you. And so they did, and I did. And so I was not only a subject matter expert for them, but a, a previous customer. So I knew their product. I knew their customer base and what they were trying to do. And that's how I was able to get my foot in the door into customer success and start my tech career there. And I've spent the past 10 years, as you mentioned, when you introduced me, doing this, this exact same thing. So building, scaling, and transforming customer success teams in these hyper-growth SaaS companies. Wow. Okay. So you seem to be somebody who very much owns your own outcome, right? A hundred percent. You have to. I think that's a bit of a mantra in around the New York City area, if I'm not mistaken, at one of my favorite cities and same with my wife. I suppose so that's the first part of the statement I'd make. And then the second part is, is that how does that feed into customer success and being successful? So just for the benefit of our listeners, for those who don't know, what is customer success and how do you deal with folks you know, how do you train people to say, oh, that customer is going to churn anyway. They're just, they're being an asshole and I can't deal with it. How do you shape attitudes on the rep side to own the customer problem? And maybe just before we get to that, what is customer success and why is it so important? Absolutely. Well, listen, I'm going to simplify it as best as possible. Customer success literally is the function of helping your customers be successful throughout that partnership. If you're a technology company, it's to help them drive and achieve their outcomes on the solution they purchased. If you're an agency, right, it could be the, the successful outcome of a program or a project you're working on. Customer success is not exclusively a function of the SaaS community any longer. You're seeing it pop up in a ton of different industries. And really all it is, is exactly what its name suggests, is your ability to help make sure your customers are successful. Now, obviously, how you orchestrate that looks very different. And in a SaaS organization is a very well-orchestrated, complex program uh, with a multitude of different roles and, and needs that hopefully the whole company is bought into. But that's that's it in its simplest form, right? Helping your customers achieve what they sought out to achieve when they entered into that partnership. So for us at Client Success, my goal, we are a customer success management solution. My customers purchase our software to effectively scale and drive efficiency around their customer success operations. That's my goal, right? Help them use the tool to be more efficient, to drive more insights, democratize data. So if I'm doing all of those things and my team is helping them use the platform every day to achieve those goals, we can hopefully make our customers successful. Hopefully they stay and hopefully they grow. Fantastic. So you're providing the platform for others to implement, deploy customer success and be successful. So um, just in terms of those kind of rock stars on your team, what does that look like? What kind of attitude and mindset do you need to have in order to be successful in this space? What does that look like? What are oh, the gosh. Have and what are the red flags do not have? <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen, the big thing for us is empathy. Um, you know, we you have to be an empathetic person. You have to understand that change is hard. And that's effectively what we're doing, right? We're helping folks go through some change management. 
Anyone who purchases software is inherently trying to do something different than they've done before. And even if they've used software before, using a different software is going to change how they do it. So we try to be very empathetic in how we approach that. So the best performing customer success managers that I've worked with have a strong level of empathy. Now, communication is a really big aspect of the work that we do too. So being able to effectively communicate um, is really big for the team. I always say at the heart, you've got to be gritty um, or very tenacious about the work that we do. It is hard. It is hard getting buy-in, right? We are outsiders. We're not in the organization driving this change for them. We're basically, if you think about us, we are like physical trainers, right? We can be there. We can show up. We can tell our athletes what to do and how to do it and what to eat and how to eat. But at the end of the day, you need them to show up, do the work, eat the food, right? So it is a lot of leading uh, the horse to water, but it's tough, right? And I need my team to realize that as long as they're doing things the best they can, they're going to have a lot of wins, but they're also going to have a lot of losses because there's no way you're going to be able to persuade and get everyone to do the things that you need to do over time. So you've got to be, uh, you've got to have a certain mindset and greediness about you to kind of work through all the obstacles that present themselves in the work that we do. Yeah, so <clears throat> impact. Um... I always, I always um, use the analogy of impact around if I, if you bought an iPhone and I said, oh yeah, you can, you can do this and you can do that and you can do whatever. And um, then you buy the iPhone and you turn it on and you say, well, how do, how do I do this and that? And you say, oh, okay, you, you gotta, you gotta build these apps to allow you to do that. And then you go, oh, hold on a minute. That's not what I was sold. <laughs> um, I got to build the apps. They're not there, you know, and, and whatever. It, it, it would be like that, right? Like selling you an iPhone, but not um, not, not um, kind of showing you. And here's the thing, right? People misunderstand. I think that customer success is about training, right? It's not about training. Um, so could you talk to me about impact? Like, how do you measure impact? Do you measure kind of, you know, um, what they call, um, I believe the term is TTV, time to value, um, you know, all of these elements around kind of how you can kind of come back into a customer and say, well, here are the things that we said would happen, impact, and here is actually what's happening um you know kind of let's 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 figure this out together how do you do that like you know can you can you walk us through how you how you measure impact and what do Absolutely. You look at? i mean listen you said it a lot of us the, the best way to start driving impact is going to be in the early stages of the partnership how you onboard that partnership into either your solution your product your agency whatever um, makes a big difference and we are focused on time to value but understandably every solution is a little different. Um, if you've used a point solution like a Calendly, which I think is like very basic, right? It helps you manage your calendar, send out links, book a meeting, great. Very different than if you are a customer success professional working with Salesforce, which is a highly customizable, highly configurable solution, like a platform. So each of those is going to have a very different experience of how you get there. And I think that's the more important thing is not only understanding who your customers are, but what the journey is that they're going to have to go on. Now, for us, our focus is very much around that. Um, but the I think at the core, it's making sure that we're all clear on the same expectations. Um, I think the, the worst thing you can do is have a customer who's coming into the partnership who expects something that isn't going to be their reality, whether that be a certain experience, a certain product. Um, and so out the gate, we want to just make sure that we're aligning on expectations. We're very clear on that. Now, from an impact standpoint, my team and I, we can I just Can I just say, yeah. just on that, sorry, just while you mentioned yeah. it, I, I know I'm probably cutting you off here, but um, no, okay. just, while, just while we're on it, 
this expectation, um, I notice a lot of the times um, that the expectation is set by sales, yeah? And then customer success, uh, actually, do, do, you, uh, do you feel that customer success should be introduced before the deal closes or after? I always say, listen, my, fam my famous saying for better or worse is it depends because it does depend. If you've got a fast sales cycle where it's like, listen, you can close business in a week, it might not make sense because you might just slow it down. If your okay. sales team can effectively talk about the work you do, fine. If you've got a very, again, complex product, you're going to bring in solutions engineers. You might bring in customer success. So every, every organization, every model, I do think it depends what you're trying to achieve. I like to make sure I don't need to do the, I don't need to have the conversation with my customers, but what I do do is make sure that we have trained and enabled our sales reps to effectively speak about our truth, right? They are very clear on what we do, what we don't do, how we do it, what it looks like. And so we feel comfortable that they are going to have the appropriate conversation and hopefully set the right expectations. I've designed all the assets. I've trained them on it. So it's, it's from the horse's mouth. They do a good job on making sure that our customers come in with some pretty clear expectations. Yeah, because sometimes it's like customer success inherit, you know, oversold expectations, and then they 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 spend most of their time firefighting instead of actually, you know, helping customers be successful. They're 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 trying to just, you know, kind of detangle um kind of what was said over here, and and we no no um it doesn't do that. Well, who told you that? <laughs> um, but. Apart from that, um, how do you um, how do you get that alignment? Um, how do you, how do you how do you ensure that alignment is there? Is it to do with the organizational structure, or is it to do with a process, or kind of how does that work? Yeah, so there's a few things that we do. The first is obviously, like I mentioned, the training enablement of the sales team to make sure that we have a. a coherent message about the work that we do from a customer success standpoint, as well as making sure that both teams are aware of what the product does and doesn't do, right? So we always try to make sure that we're addressing that. There's no um, missold expectations about, oh yeah, the product's going to do all these things that it doesn't do. We try to be very honest and upfront about that and kind of own where we are in the market. Um, that really does help. But the first thing that we do from a customer success standpoint is once that prospect becomes a customer, we don't jump right into onboarding. I see a lot of companies that go straight from that deal is sold to a very technical conversation where you've eliminated executives and gone straight down to the technical folks who are going to work on the doings. And I'll tell you, that is a huge miss. I've introduced something as part of our journey, which is the first conversation that we have, which is our partnership kickoff conversation. And this is a, an executive level discussion where we reset all those expectations. So in order to successfully have that discussion, the sales and the CS teams are having a really good handoff. Um, I know that a lot of people talk about that and they beat that horse because some companies do it, some don't do it, some do it well, some do it poorly. Um, I like to think that we do it well. We pass over the right information from our CRM into the client success solution. So we try to eliminate a lot of work from the sales team and give the CS team what they need to be effective in that. But then we have a dialogue, right? We have a conversation and the CS team gets to ask all the things that they think they know, they'll need to know. So we can step into that first conversation without having to have our customers repeat themselves because they don't want to do that. And it's a lot of confirming. So we show up day one with like, hey, here's what we know about who you are. Here's what we've heard that you want to do. Here's how you intend to do it. And it's a lot of validation. And listen, sometimes the customer thought they said something or they, they said something and now it's changed in the sales process. This is a great opportunity for us to align and validate and have a very productive conversation so we know where we're going from here. This conversation is also the launch pad of helping us determine which onboarding program 
the customer go down, goes down. We don't have a one size fits all onboarding. It's designed in a flexible manner. So that way we're giving the experience our customers need. For example, we have some folks who very small customer success teams, right? A leader that maybe has never done this job before, hasn't really designed all of their processes. And, you know, they're hoping the solution is going to help them move things along, but maybe they're not checking a lot of the boxes of our true ICP. Um, in that case, the onboarding that we're going to have to design for them is going to be filled with templates and guides and things that are really going to help not only educate them on the product, but educate them on the things they're going to need to do as leaders to help them be successful with our product. Now, on the other side of that, if we've got a very sophisticated customer who's deployed customer success software 10 times in their career and they, they know what they're doing, guess what? Our program looks very different. It's all about accelerating that because they're going to want to move quickly. They're going to want to know what they need to know, how to do it, move to the point of value um, in a very timely manner. And so we've got to be there to provide that experience as well. So we don't put everyone into a bucket, right? And that conversation allows us to determine what route we're going to go on to make sure, again, we're meeting their expectations. We're creating and designing an experience that feels unique to them and hopefully getting to that point of value as quickly as they can get there. Um, I can't, I can't say all of my customers, oh yeah, you're going to be onboarded in four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. Folks that say that are lying. If you are a customer, customer success professional and you say, listen, every single one of our customers is going to be onboarded in eight weeks. That's false. Everyone is in a different place. And I'm not saying you need to design a fully customized onboarding journey for every one of those customers. But if you don't have some different variant model that's going to help identify who they are, where they are, and how you're going to get them there, you're going to mess it up. They're never going to meet that timeline. And that's where you start missing expectations, right? Because then you go back. Oh, well, you told me eight weeks. I'll have this in eight weeks. And here we are 12 weeks later, and we're not even deployed yet. Um, our approach to how we do this mitigates a lot of that. Now, not all of it, because no program is perfect, but we definitely get ahead of it more than we don't. That's wonderful. And it sounds like your software then is kind of equipped with, um, you know, all of the elements around that process um, that um, you you can you can build out those uh, various uh, different onboarding processes with all of the the collateral and templates and all that kind of stuff. Is that what it does? Um, our platform offers some of that ability, but we actually I'm going to tell you we 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 kick it old school. We're still using Google Sheets for hours because I will tell you our customers like things that they're familiar with. And so while I'm happy to deploy things in my product for them to use out the gate, there's a learning curve to that. So instead of creating a learning curve from day one, we create an easy way to enter the partnership, which is, hey, you know how to use Google Sheet. All of these tabs are going to really easily flow you through what you have to do and when you have to do it. And our customers really appreciate the simplicity of that. So in an effort to not overcomplicate, we keep things simple. And sometimes that's just using the tools that everyone's familiar with. Yeah, and also um, you you meet people where they are absolutely rather rather than assuming that everybody is there. And yeah, it's it's a big mistake I see a lot of the time in the sales process as well when you're getting down to you know the the end of the process that um, you know salespeople assume that the people who are buying the applications know how to buy them. <laughs> and they Which, don't you know like, most people don't know how to be no, good i've never bought this before like how, yeah so it's up to it's up to i see the best organizations really good at helping those people involved in the decision making process kind of understand how to get this across the line that they take the lead the real good kind of um, revenue-led organizations do that 
um, they do that very effectively, you know, because they don't presume that. So look, we're here to celebrate great women leaders like yourself, Christian, who, who are making, you know, some serious positive impact in the software industry and indeed in the world. And I, I you know, I read, I'm trying to think, I think it was um, Julia Lipton. She, she's, she's a founder of uh, Awesome People Ventures, but I read that she explains in her experience that uh, women tend to have a lower risk tolerance than men, which really translates into very comprehensive due diligence from women VCs. Um, what, what's your view on, from, from a customer success uh, perspective, um, do you think that, um, you know, in terms of that lower risk for tolerance and more attention to detail, do you think that women are better suited to, to those type of roles or kind of what's your experience or view on that? I think generally, yes, probably more risk adverse. Um, but I would say, and it was funny, like as I was preparing for a conversation today, I think one of the things that has differentiated me from a lot of my female peers in this space is that I actually go after the risk, right? Like I'm going to take big, bold chances. And I think I operate fearlessly just because I feel safe professionally um, to go ahead and do those things. But I do think that it's easier to operate in a safe way and do your due diligence and make sure you're being very methodical in all the decision-making that goes into every element of everything. But I can't, I can't work that slow, if that makes sense. <laughs> I think to get to that level, um, you're just operating in a different cadence. And um, I probably take bigger risks and move a little bit faster. And maybe it's a little messier, but I've found that that served me well. So, um, before we were talking today, like you're quite clearly a person who's on top of their game, right? You absolutely are. And you own the opportunity, you own your own destiny, and you're a very driven person, right? And I would put that word person um, front and center. Um, what we were talking a bit about the show about, you know, you're, you know, we, we were, women are more conscious of their appearance when they appear in public, etc. <laughs> right? So that was one of the kind of nuances. And in the Women in Tech series, I can tell our audience here now the secret is out is that that is the number one question we get ahead of recording the show. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. And uh, when we have video on, um, my question is, you know, you're clearly a person on top of their game. What specifically holds women back? And what are we like, where are we winning in society today with some of the changes in the law that we've seen from our parents and our grandparents generation? You know, I mean, it, it was the case that in the 70s, that women in the public sector had to quit their job legally when they got married. That was a real law that was in place, right? What what has changed? What where are we winning? And what what's holding women back today that we need to fix still? All right. Well, I'm going to start with the negative because I like to end with the positive. So yeah. I will talk about what's holding us back a little bit. And I think this is as a society. Um, sadly, family is still a big issue. Um, you know, there's a lot of women that I talk to all the time, and I'll share a personal story of my own who, you know, listen, as they are family planning, as much as I love the idea of equality, let's just be honest, men aren't having babies, at least not today. Maybe I'll be alive long enough to see that, but today they're not. And so the reality of it is, if you are having a family, right, women are going through that. They're having the babies. And so there is a period of time where it is difficult for them in their career, right? I know women who are laid off, especially now with the economy being what it is, who are six, seven months pregnant. And it is a daunting task for them to try to find work before they go, they would go out technically on mat leave. And it's, it's nearly impossible for them, right? Companies aren't taking the chances they would, like women aren't showing up there, you know, in video right now, it's safer because they feel like, yep, I can hide my belly, right? The camera only goes here up. So maybe you don't see it. 
right? But then it's like, you're not being open and honest either with the employer, but the reality of it is if, if you did show that you're seven months pregnant, is somebody gonna hire you? Now I've worked for a lot of companies and sadly some of the comments behind the scenes from, and, I, and I'm not gonna say it's men or women or just men or just women, will make comments, right? Like, oh, you know what? We can't afford to bring this person on for three months. By the time they ramp, they'll be leaving to go on a maternity leave. And so this is really, you know, we're not gonna be able to get value from them for, you know, eight months, nine months. Those are real statements that are being made. Um, and so there is still this gap that exists for things like that, right? Women being pregnant. Now I'll tell you, I am very ambitious, right? I have gone after my career head on. I went from in 10 years in tech, I went from an individual contributor to the C-suite. That is not a common journey. I've accelerated that tremendously, but guess what? By doing so, I forgot to have kids. I was so busy on the road doing the things that I thought I needed to do, showing up in a way that I needed to show up every single day professionally that it wasn't on the table for me. I mean, I was doing 150,000 miles a year, sometimes more, just as part of my day job. And honestly, the, the fear I lived every day was if I did decide to have a child and step out, that would be a major setback, right? That would set me back months, years behind my male counterparts. Opportunities that were on the table today wouldn't be available. They're not gonna be waiting for me when I come back. And that's the reality. And I'm sorry, like I know that there's a lot of companies that are probably trying to mitigate that and, and not make that a thing, but it's it's still happening all day, every day. And I think that's a big challenge we need to just be honest about and face. So I feel very strongly about this issue as well. And um, I've been on national media here talking about how I think childcare and infrastructure need to support that. I'm not asking for equal outcomes for everyone, but what I am asking for is an equal playing field for everybody. How do you think men fit into that? Um, I'm a father of three young children myself. Um, how do you think men fit into that solution and being part of that? I mean, there's a granted given part of a woman being out for giving birth and, and you know, varying different countries have different support mechanisms for how long that maternity or paternity, as it's now known, it's the duality in some, some countries. What does that mean? How do men be part of that solution? What do we need to do a better job of? Well, I mean, listen, I think all this stuff starts at home. I like to think that I have a very balanced partnership with my husband and like there is no there's no woman work in my house. There's no men work in our house. We've kind of divided and found a way to do all of the work between the two of us. And when I travel, he does it all. When he travels, I do it all. Right. And so there needs to be a balanced, I think, ability to operate in the home first. And that's where it does start, because it is there. It would be nearly impossible for me to have the career that I have and do the work that I do if I didn't have the support I have at home. And I, so I do think that some of these things start at home. I think when you get out of the home and now you're back in the workplace, um, I think there needs to be a general thought and mindset around women as caregivers, right? Or men as caregivers. And there just needs to be a prioritization of family and family needs and creating balance. Um, you know, I spent tons of years working, I don't know, as many hours as you can fit into a human day with maybe sleeping three or four hours. Um, for a long time, just really minimal sleep. I was supporting the Philippines and Australia and China and India. And so to, to operate plus, you know, North America. So operating in all those time zones doesn't give you a lot of time to sleep. And I was doing it because I felt like that was the work I needed to have, right? It, the jobs did not create balance for me as a leader, right? I would never put any one of my individuals, contributors in a position where they are doing that, where the imbalance of their ability to do their work is, is near impossible. And so I think that just, I think creating balance and boundaries 
for humans, forget women or men, but like just creating a better operating model allows people to show up in the ways that they need you to do those things. Yeah, that was that was a question I had in that. Like who, who allows you to be in that situation? Oh, like to, to create to create the work that like the world that I've created for my employees. And what kind of leader did you have that would allow you to be in a situation where you? Oh, uh, well, you, you know, they should remain nameless. Yeah, but I mean, again, it is down to leadership, right? And we're here to talk about leadership, specifically um, um, women in leadership, but leadership nonetheless. And, you know, I wonder, we, we had uh, Wendy Harris from Gong on this week speaking about um, her kind of leadership around those elements that um you know she she refuses to send uh, or answer any emails after like 6 p.m and stuff like that because as as a leader you you can't you can't on one hand say i don't want anybody you know emailing anybody at 6 p.m and then you send emails to people or you encourage right um that kind of behavior you know so i think there are some changes there um to go back to I, I'm intrigued by, by by this and I think it's it's very it, it really it really struck a chord with me um earlier when you were speaking to um women in particular that have been laid off but are pregnant and then they're looking for um for new roles and then you know there's a consideration um you're not you know it, it it's it could be men women whatever it doesn't matter it's companies let's just say are are kind of they're going, um, oh, I'm not sure if we should, um, you know, kind of uh, hire somebody who's only going to be just ramped up and then they're going to be leave, leaving for the best part of a year and then, or whatever, you know, or, or whatever the, the, the time frame is. But, but what, 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 would, what would an alternative proposition look like? Like, how, how, how could you get over that? Or like, if, if you were designing something that would um, be, you know, something that would work what, what in in your world what would that look like you know it's really tough um i've i've interviewed some really fantastic people in in my career and sadly you know the advice i was given was that maybe that person's not the best fit right which was code for we know why we're not going to move forward with that candidate let's go okay. find someone else. for me listen if i'm designing a program that's going to be able to overcome that i think it comes down to like what is the way that you can ramp them, get them to drive impact, right? I mean, you've got to be able to cover things when people go out regardless. If they were an employee for a year before, and then they decided that they were going to grow their family, which is their prerogative, they're going to step out of the office, right? And they're going to come back at some other point. You've got to but design this is new people. I'm, I'm talking about, you're, you're, you're talking about people who were let go from one company, right? So so I'm, I'm not talking about those because you would, you would absolutely hope that most organizations would have some kind of um, uh, platform in place to support, um, you know, uh, the women who have contributed, you know, being, being part of the organization that, you know, um, when life happens and, you know, the, the, these um, hugely important um, elements have, happen in, in, their, in their personal life, that they would be supported through that, whatever happens. But it's an, it, it, I'm talking about the specific situation that you described there about um women who have been let go from from this company but now we're looking for new employment that's, well, that's what i mean but yeah so what i'm saying is the same thing applies right does if it okay. Design okay something for someone who's been there for a year why does it matter that you can't design the same for for someone who's coming in for a few months i mean here's the thing if the person is the most qualified to do the work 
Why are you going to not bring them into your business? If they're going to be the best person to do the job, hire them, hire them, ramp them, get them in there because what does it matter, right? They're going to step out for this, whether it's now in three months and six months, let them be a part of this growth. If they're going to be able to make meaningful contributions to your business, then just make the hire. I get it, right? There's the short-term pain, but this is like, again, if you've got a program in place that would support a cut, like a professional who's there for a year or two years, why can't you apply that same program or process for somebody who comes in? It's going to be, it's just the timing of it is a little different. I don't know. I, I don't see things as complicated as that. Like if they're good, hire them. Who cares? Anybody can go out. If I broke my leg tomorrow, I need to go get surgery, right? I'm out. So you've got to be able to just accommodate that and operate in that mindset. If they're the best person, bring them on board. Fantastic. Yeah. Amen. I I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And again, it was something that I just wanted to get your view on it and kind of- We just make too many excuses. We need to stop making excuses. Make the damn higher, higher than the great. Good. Let's move on. I love because the mindset. Let, let me just tell you something. You know how much more time you're going to spend interviewing so many unqualified candidates and maybe exactly. even pull exactly. the trigger on somebody yeah. who was not as good yeah. only have to manage them out six months later anyway like if they're great make the hire who cares it. yeah so what else annoys you oh god everything i have two two other things that are like little prickly things for okay me. go for um it. barrier that holds us back compensation now not because companies aren't willing to pay but women don't negotiate I tell you, I've interviewed countless candidates in my career. A man always comes back to push back on my offer. Even when I say, this is the number I have from day one. I always interview very transparently. Here is what I have for this role. I don't even give a range. Here's the exact dollar amount I pay because I do comp bands. Everyone gets paid equally on my teams. This is what I have. Does this work for you? Yes or no. If it does, great. We go through. At the end, when I make the offer and I say, great, here it is, they still try to negotiate. I never, ever, ever get women who negotiate on that. If I say this is the best and only thing I can do, do you want to go through the process? Great. I show up with the offer and it's that. Thank you. They accept. We need to be fighting more. I have never accepted a first offer. I don't even think I've accepted a second offer. Um, I will go back and forth. I, I try to make sure that I'm fighting for everything I'm worth. And I don't see enough women taking that chance, right? Risking it. There's this, there's this fear that if I negotiate and I push back, and I ask, they're going to go with somebody else. Yeah. Well, yeah. I said yesterday on a show that, and, and this is, this is um, something that I've, I've kind of inculcated in, in, into my son's life, who's, who's only 14 is that I said, look, um, and, and he clearly understands this, that you don't get what you deserve, you know, and he's, he's involved in sports, et cetera, you know, and, and that goes from, you know, kind of playing time to whatever, right? I said, you don't get what you deserve. You, you get what you negotiate. And that is a fact, isn't it? It's just really, I mean, honestly, like everyone wants to sit here and talk about, well, we'll look at the Delta, right? Men earnings versus women. Well, show up and do something about it. It's not just the companies. And listen, yes, companies can be better about doing certain things that maybe balance things out a bit more, but I have never not fought for what I wanted. Yeah. If I wanted something, I've gone after it head first. I don't always get everything I want. At least not professionally at home. Well, what about the women that don't have like and, and and a lot of men are like this as well, right? They have a, a default personality style that just doesn't work well with with negotiation. You know, they see that as um as you know, I, I dare say aggressive, but 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 they 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 they, they a lot of people see negotiation as confrontation that they would rather avoid. It doesn't need to be right. And that and that's right. the big thing. And I'll tell you more, more often than not, companies are designed and waiting for it. 
right? They're making the assumption that somebody is going to come back and ask for more. I've, I've worked with enough HR reps where they're like, okay, here's your starting offer and here's what you can go up to, right? But everyone wants to get the most they can get for as little as they can get it. That's, yeah. you know, we're, we're all negotiating, right? The company's negotiating, the individual's negotiating. Everyone wants to get, find something that's mutually beneficial at the least amount, at least for the company's sake, right? Let, least amount of spend, the employee wants the most amount of money they can get. So it's a dance, right? Show up and, and be ready for it. It's just, it breaks my heart when women don't. Okay, what else? There's one more thing you said. All right, I said, yes. And this is just, this is like a me thing, um, just because I still I still see it now. I have a, a lot of females on my team, but I've managed a lot of women. I have been a woman in a, in a kind of like middle leadership role. Women are still jealous and holding other women back. I'm sorry. Boom. I, I know. <laughs> there it is. crappy as a woman to say it, but this jealousy, this competitiveness, this like, you can't let, like lift somebody up. Like, it's like calling another girl pretty. Like if my husband sees another girl and she's beautiful, if he can't admit that she's beautiful, he's crazy, right? But it doesn't make me less pretty. If she's pretty, I can still be pretty, yeah. right? Yeah. People don't realize this. It is this, still this competitive world for females where they feel like there can only be one. There will only be one woman standing at the end. And it's I like, love oh, that. Please yeah. stop yeah. it. I watched. We I actually watched had, we actually had a few stories. People. Yeah, we, we had someone um, um, tell us a story about, and, and, and this is her language now, not mine, but she, she told us a story about a time where she didn't, um, she didn't get involved and, and wasn't uplifted into a, a board role because there was some other woman there that was, that was on the board. And uh, years later, you know, kind of um, the truth was unveiled and um, she said it boiled down to this other lady wanted to be the only vagina in the boardroom and crazy, right yeah. what happened to allyship power in numbers i don't know listen i am not a female threatened by other females so i don't know what goes through the head of somebody who can't uplift and celebrate other women's success and really empower them to to grow and be successful i just don't get that because i don't work oh. that way but i see it yeah. every day and we are our worst enemies well you watch these shows on tv my wife watches these um, you know, Orange County. Um, oh, whatever. all the housewife show. Yep, I'm yeah, there yeah. for it. But the, I don't know the other ones, but there's loads of them. But they tear each other to shreds. There's it's, and it's and disgusting. and the irony of it is is that they have these platforms where they say, I, like, the only reason they're doing these things is to empower other women, and they tear each other to shreds. I listened to like ten minutes of one show, and I was like, oh my god! Like, right. Let's be honest, they are going to work. We all watch it, but sadly, like that's what we see, right? Like we're we're kind of, all this is ingrained in us. But I, I really need women to stop, right? Stop being petty and catty and jealous. Um, you've got to check all of that because if we don't, we are never we are never going to get to where we need to get. It's just it's really sad. It's heartbreaking. Boom. I think I think they're, they're two fantastic takeaways. In fact, my wife and I would be walking down the street and she she'll say. I presume you saw that lady. Over there. I'm like, <laughs> three o'clock? I'm all over it. Way before you did, dear. <laughs> you know what? There, there's a level of like, listen, I think it's a confidence thing for a lot of women, right? Women are insecure for whatever, right, whatever reasons. You've got to be secure in yourself. You've got to know your worth. You've got to live in your truth. And I think the more you can hone in on that stuff, right? Build your confidence, increase your security levels. Um, you're going to be able to just, celebrate other women and bring them along. Um, my team, I've built a little army of really powerful women who I am 
proud of. And every day I fight for them to be bigger and better and grow and, and be successful. And I tell them every day, I said, my goal one day is to work for one of you. If I have been a part, a small part of your journey and helped elevate you to a place where your career takes off, your trajectory far succeeds where mine did, and I work for you one day, I did it. I did my job and I did it well. Awesome. That's There's fantastic. just not enough women who want to operate in that mindset. Always hire people better than you and smarter than you. And if you can do that, you'll build a fantastic team, not because you're inferior, but because you know that you'll all be collectively better. And if you can surrender yourself to that concept, you will be without any want uh, and ultimately successful. Could not agree with you more. Huge takeaway from today's show. So as we round the corner here and wrap up, we always like to ask our guests one final parting uh, question around their hacks, tips and tricks for being productive and staying on top of their game, which without question you clearly are. We've had folks talk about calendaring systems, Trello boards, Apple watches, old school pen and papers come up more often than we care to remember. What tool or go-to set of tools works for you in your world that you just could not live without? Okay, so I, I'm going to be one of your old school folks and tell you just straight up post-its. Post um, not, not a post-it app, not a notes app, not something that's going to like, I, I have every technology device you can imagine. I've got 30,000 right Apple products on my desk right now. This is the most effective thing in the world for me, right? Sure. My desk right now is littered with post-its, but guess what? At the end of the day, me being able to rip that post-it off my monitor, throw it in the garbage, that's my list. That's how I get things done. It's my productivity tool. So a marker and a post-it pad does it for me all day, every day. I've tried everything else um, and it just doesn't work as effectively. I'll tell you the next thing for me, I've got to have very clear goals, whether it's a goal for the day, a goal for the week, a goal for my life operating very focused on my goals, being very vocal about them because I need accountability and I need people to know that I'm working towards something because I hate letting people down. Um, if I have that, I can get through anything. I can accomplish the, the biggest the biggest challenges and the littlest challenges. Wow. Okay. So I, I'm a believer and I don't have any psychological proof here, but I'm pretty much <laughs> sure that there's endorphin that is released in your brain when you do the physical activity of ripping that post-it off as your to-do list. I'm pretty convinced of that. Listen, here's my pile of completed things, right? Like I've got, a, I've got a litter of, of done post-its and the ones that are my monitor, the ones that I need there. And there is, right? It's like accomplishing something, being able to pluck it off, pull it off, rip it up, throw it out, not see it again. Yes, it is the same concept of crossing things off a list. And if you're a list maker, sure. If it's checking a box on a digital app, yes. It's the ability to feel like you've completed something. Now, let me ask you guys, did either of you read the book, uh, How to Make Your Bed or Make Your Bed, rather? Uh, I have not. I, no. I actually know it well, though, because it's the, I, it's a very famous snippet on social media. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, Jacko Willick talks about it a lot in Extreme yeah. Ownership. Yeah, yeah. So I, I haven't so read it, but I know exactly. Big what fan of Jocko. About. Love Jocko. Yeah. But so um, Adver Admiral uh, McRaven did the po he did his speech at University of uh, Texas, Austin. And I'll tell you, I did a post on it on LinkedIn the other day because this is like one of those things, right? The, the same endorphin that comes from like ripping off that post-it he starts off with like his 10 things that he kind of gives you that'll change your life and how you behave. And his first one is like, start your day with making your bed, right? Mm -hmm. He talked about how he, when he was a Navy SEAL, how they would come into the barracks and they'd check to make sure his bed was made and had to be made perfectly corners tight, pillow folded, like all the things. And he's like, you know what? At the end of the day, good day or bad day, if I completed everything or nothing, I started my day with a whim, right? I completed one task every single day. 
And that's the way it works for me. I do make my bed every day, mainly because my mother raised me to make my bed every day. Sure. But it has it has different uh, impact on me now, right? It's starting my day with checking things off, right? I go, I wake up every morning at 4 a.m. I'm in my gym class at five. I'm home by six. I do more by 8 a.m. than most people, right? Between getting my kids off to school, packing lunch, making beds, cleaning the house, uh, dog walking, all the stuff by 8 a.m., and so I start my day already feeling successful. And there is something about that that changes the entire dynamic for the rest of my day. My day is always a win. Well, and so whether it's more checking your list, killing your post-its, making your bed, right? Those things, those habits, those behaviors, they do, they op- they do give you endorphins. They do give you real purpose and value and they are drivers. So I believe that. Couldn't agree more. Fantastic. And I was just saying there, you're 50% more productive than anyone else because you've got another four hours in the day that no one else has, right? So, you know, you, we don't all get equal time in life. No, we don't. Actually, you get to decide how many of those hours. Now, I'm not suggesting people don't get enough sleep at night, but you clearly have more productive of a day than anyone else because of it. Listen, I go to bed at nine o'clock. So there's people that stay up way past my bedtime and they're using the back half of the day, right? Like my day just happens to start early There you go. and end early. Yeah, and I and, and I agree with you. And you're getting those wins in early. And at the end of the day, you're coming home to a main, made bed anyway. So, you know, it's going to end well, well too. He ends his thing. He's like, even if you've had the worst day, you have, you're coming home to a bed that's made, a bed that you made, a bed that you can climb into and know that tomorrow has the opportunity to be a better day. And I was like, oh, yeah. such a, like such a powerful concept with the simple task of Isn't making it- a bed. I don't know if I'd be getting out of it at 4 a.m. though, but anyway. I'll tell you, the winter, we're, we're creeping into winter here in New York, yeah. and it does get harder. There yeah. is, a, it is real tough when it's cold, getting out of the bed, leaving my house, oof. So, um, but this is where discipline comes into place, right? And being a very disciplined person. I don't get out of bed and go to the gym because I can't wait to get to the gym. It's it's a habit I've developed, right? I'm disciplined to do it. I'm not always motivated to do it. Atomic Habits. There's a fabulous book. I've James Clear. At the bottom of my pile there, if you oh, can see yeah. that white book right yeah. there, right at the glass table, Atomic Habits, also oh. a phenomenal book. And there's yeah. also Mel Robbins for anyone who wants to get out of bed at 4 a.m. There's the five second rule. So count back from five, four, three, two, one. And if it's still terrible, don't do it. You know, jump out of bed. That's the idea behind it. She's fantastic. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Mel Robbins, check her out. Well, look, I can't thank you enough for being on today's show. We've got tremendous value, and I su- suspect we have another 10 hours to record on these ideas. <laughs> so let's make sure we do that. But in any case, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Great discussion. Yeah, thank you, Chrissy. Um, I mean, what a wonderful, um, what a wonderful exchange that was um today. I can't thank you enough. We really enjoyed being with you today, and we wish you and everybody else a kind success, nothing but success in the future and um, yeah we'll have you on the show again if, if that's okay thank you so much i would love that brilliant thanks you've been listening to the global tech leaders podcast designed for both established and aspiring career focused tech rock stars as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world for further details check out sf-talent.com